This morning is Sunday, November 20th. It is Sunday morning, and we are talking about the measure of a man. You know, there are all kinds of ways in this world that people determine what manliness is, and I think it's important that we get a biblical definition. So we're going to do that. But I have some housekeeping items first. I usually do this stuff off the CD, but since we have a growing online church, I need to mention some of it on, on uh, CD. First is, the Kensians have officially asked to be announced as members of our church. Isn't that great? Yeah. I wish I could mic the audience. Mom, Dad, everybody's clapping for you. Isn't that great? Now, that's funny because I was asked twice in a two-week period about that, and uh, apparently just trying to get something through to me. Uh, the Lynn and Jen Gazinski in Chicago asked about the same thing. And at the time, I didn't know what to think about cyber church. You know, it scared me to death. I don't want people forsaking fellowship, and I was worried about that. No, you know what it is? People are gleaning from this ministry. That's a good thing. That's what we want. So, yeah, we welcome them all as members. We don't have an official membership, but we figure if we see you and you love us, then you're members. So the Kensians are officially members this morning. They listen and comment on every... Uh... <laughs> Somebody asked, when are they going to move? It is neat that uh, God can scatter us from Chicago to California to Arkansas all over the United States to get this message out. The salt doesn't have to stay in a shaker, and you don't have to see somebody each week to invest in their lives. Gabe and Debbie have long-term plans outside of this church. That's good. That's what I want. That's if we, we're surprised you want to invest in us in this way if we're only going to be here 60 days. That's exactly why I want to invest in you as much as I can. You're only going to be here 60 days. God didn't call us to build retirement programs. He didn't call us to build financial security. He called us to build this kingdom. And that's worth thinking about. This morning's message is the measure of a man. And uh, I had this on my mind for a couple reasons. And uh, I guess some of it will become evident as we go. But there are temptations in this world constantly to act in a way that is not godly and think that it's your right to do so, that you should do so, and that it's the manly thing to do. So let's uh, turn with me to 2 Kings 19. 2 Kings 19. Y'all having a good morning? That was good worship, wasn't it? I tell you what, I am thankful for that. I could do without the preaching personally, but I can't do without the worship. (laughs) You know, the Bible was written over a period in excess of 1,600 years. Isn't that amazing? 44 different authors on several different continents. And yes, yet there's a continuous theme from beginning to end of redemption, the restoration of man. This is a beautiful book, and I thank God for it every day. You know, don't neglect reading the Word. It'll change your whole life. It'll change your whole life. And don't let anybody trick you into believing that any part of it is not good or applicable today. That's, every part of this is good for you. You may have to know how to relate to some of it differently than other things, just like the scriptures we talked about, braided hair and gold jewelry and all this. But all of it is good. You can find good in it. Are you in 2 Kings 19? Yes. Okay. There was a man named Sennacherib. (laughs) This guy was a a powerful individual. Uh, You may have heard his name as Sennacherib. That's how some people say it. A man is not measured by his dominion of other men. That's one of the ways the world measures manliness, manhood, by people's business prowess, by their athletic ability, by their intellectual ability, by their conquest in war. There's a popular television show on right now called The Apprentice. You know, 
Everything that that show lifts up, and I watch it, by the way. I hope that doesn't shock you. I watch it. Everything that it lifts up is the great thing to do. It's pretty well things that Jesus can't honor and wouldn't honor. People are not measured by their intellectual abilities, by their uh, business acumen. Sinasherib is a man who rose to the top of society, if you will. In 2 Kings 19, starting in verse 10, Hey, before we read that, think about this. Who would the world say is great? They might say that the guy that runs Apprentice is great, right? right. Yeah, I mean, his name's in gold everywhere. He's had beautiful wives. He's got all kind of uh, material wealth. He's great, right? How about athletic ability? LeBron James, huh? Isn't he the great athlete of our time? Or maybe Muhammad Ali a generation ago, or Michael Jordan. All great men, right? What are they doing for Jesus? Are they really great men? How about Bill Gates? You know, now, I'm not picking on any of these people. I don't know them. Maybe they've been born again and love the Lord and I just don't know it. Okay? But what I'm trying to say is, how do you define what great is? That's important. Because I want to be great in the kingdom of God. And it's important to define that. And is it okay to want to be great in the kingdom of God? Well, sure, if you know what it means. Second Kings 19, starting in verse 10. Say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, this is Sennacherib speaking, by the way, do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Isn't that what the enemy always says? Isn't that what the way of the world always is? They stand outside the walls of your city and say, don't be deceived. Trusting in your God is a vain hope. Steve, if you want to survive in the business world, my friend, you better hit them before they hit you. Holding up the standards of this world as something that you better cling to. Send a sheriff stand out there saying, don't be deceived. Your God's not going to help you. Listen to what else he says. Surely you have heard what I did with the kings of Assyria. Uh, I'm sorry. Surely you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely. And will you be delivered? Did the gods of the nations that were destroyed by my forefathers deliver them? The gods of Gozan, Haran, Resva, and the people of Eden who were in Tel Asar. Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arphad, the king in the city of Seraphim, or Hena, or Iva? Do you hear what he's saying? I conquer everywhere I go. I'm a great person. What makes you think your God's going to save you? Boy, isn't that what the world cries out to Christianity? Christianity's weak. It's a religion for women and children. Simply a device to control the masses. Haven't you heard it all before? If you want to be great in their eyes, if you want to be great, what do you have to do? You have to conquer other kingdoms. You have to show that you're the best athlete, the best businessman, the most macho in every way. Isn't that what we teach our kids? Not we, but isn't that what the world teaches their kids? You put uh, posters on their wall of men that have conquered other men. You know, we don't live in the Roman gladiator times, and yet we do. All you got to do is go into some of my son's friends' rooms and look on their walls. Wrestlers, professional wrestlers, professional athletes. Who do we idolize? Who are the great men? They're men that have conquered everybody else. But is that what the Bible calls great? In 2 Kings 19, verse 35, we see God's response to this challenge. That night, the angel of Yahweh, L-O-R-D is called the Tetratomagron. Those of you that don't know that, when you see L-O-R-D in all capital letters, that's a substitution 
for the word Yahweh because the Jews reverenced that word and didn't want to use it carelessly. So they substituted something there. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death a hundred and eighty-five thousand men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. I'm sorry, what did he just say the day before? Your God cannot save you. Your God will not save you. What God of any country has ever saved the people out of my hands? And in a single night, the difference was made? One angel. One. Now, Jesus said He had more than 12 legions at His disposal and a single angel in a single evening decimated Sennacherib's camp. Y'all, 185,000 men, I don't think there's been a battle ever, ever at any time in at least modern history. Not even in the Civil War did 185,000 men die in a single day. One warrior for God did that. Now let's see what happens to Sennacherib. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day while he was worshiping in the temple of his god, Nisroch, boy, that's a nasty god. You ought to learn about him sometime. He's worshiping in the temple of his god, right? You remember what he said to Israel? Oh man, it's a vain hope for you to think your god will deliver you out of my hand. Now he's worshiping in the temple of his god. His sons, Adramalek and Shazer, cut him down with the sword. And they escaped to the land of Ararat. And Eskarhaddon, his son, succeeded him as king. You want to be great? The world says to be great, you need to dominate other people. You need to be the best in business. You need to be the best athletically. You need to be the best uh, even intellectually. You need to dominate and conquer in every realm. But the people that we see do that in the Bible, are they great in God's eyes? This guy died. A humiliating death. His own children killed him. You know, Herod was the same way, by the way. Josephus' book, Thrones of Blood, chronicles one generation of Herod's killing the next for generations. Is that the legacy that anybody would want? But if you teach your kids, if you raise people in an environment that says to be great you have to step on others, one day they will step on you. Those are the standards of this world, though. Dog eat dog, we say. I say that's right. If dog eats dog, you're both dogs. That's not what Jesus said. The dogs are outside the kingdom. The dogs are where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. To be great, you don't have to conquer or dominate other people. The Bible teaches us about greatness, but let's move on. A man is not measured by his dominion of women. That's another way some people think that they're great. His sexual conquest, his chauvinistic oppression of women, his physical strength over women. Think about this in the realm of the rock stars, right? You remember when you're in seventh grade, you're, especially you guys, you're coming into your uh, adolescence <laughs> and uh, you're looking around going, wow, these rock stars look like uh, effeminate little guys. In my day, they, were, you know, they had these long, bushy hairdos. The hair bands of, uh, were, were popular, Right? And you looked at them and you said, golly, you know, these, these guys are singing about being tough and look at them, right? And what was the response that you would always hear? Yeah, man, but they get all the girls. Like that's what makes you a man. Not that the other would either. They get all the girls. Is that really what's important in life? That would make somebody a man? For you women, is it who you're married to that makes you a woman of God? I can assure you that's not the case. Look at the people we call great. What's a long marriage in Hollywood these days? 
16, 17 months? I mean, why? what's the point? <laughs> you know, why not just call it what it is? We'd like to sleep together for a while and have a big party. You know? 1 Kings 11, I want to read to you about a man who some would think was great because of his conquest. 1 Kings 11. Y'all there? Verse 1. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonianites. I'm sorry, Sidonians, too many ites in there. Hittites. They were from the nations about which the Lord had told Israel, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. You must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your heart. Boy, we need to be really careful what we set our mind to do. I've noticed with young Christians that are anointed, that are called, Business opportunities sneak in. They sneak in to try to derail people. There is nothing wrong with doing well in the world. Promise there's not. As long as it's what God's will is for you. And in my life, everywhere I've gone, somebody has tried to pull me into an opportunity that is good, but not God. Because they want to sidetrack you. And they don't even know what they're doing. They're puppets on a string. You watch that, you'll see that. You'll see it everywhere. Somebody will come up and say, Hey, I'd like to offer you a job preaching in my church. But there's a price. I want you to preach these five sermons. I want you to stick to this doctrine only. And boy, there's a tug of war that goes on. Happened in my life. There's a price. Well, Solomon was tempted with something. To intermarry. Intermarry not just with the Ammonites, but also the Edomites, the Moabites, the Sidonians, and the Hittites. Starting with the word nevertheless. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after the gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Anamites. Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. It's amazing. You set your heart on becoming something great. You can do it in the world of business, the world of athletics. You can do it in the fleshly realm of pleasures and desires. And the result is not great in God's eyes. Other men may look and go, oh my goodness, look at Solomon's wealth. Look at Solomon's harem. Look at all Solomon has accomplished in his day. What a great man! I thought it was funny that in Western civilization, one of the things that they teach is the golden age of Israel. They don't mention King David. (laughs) They don't mention any of the other kings of Israel. They mention Solomon because he's a great man in their eyes. Isn't that amazing? But the thing that they call great is not what God would call great. You know... One of the things that caused this message to come to my mind in the early days when I first began to dwell on this was I was watching my own father, my stepfather, Gary, the one that we were talking about this morning. And Gary was a man that had played on 
championship football teams, you know, SEC champions, all of the, he's got uh, college rings, he was a college football coach, he has all these things that the world would call great. Gary was a good man, I'm not saying that he wasn't, but he, all of these things that the world would call great. In fact, in the little town that we lived in, I'm saying little because it's, you know, under half a million people, everywhere we went, people recognized him and they saw him. That can do two things to a person. And I always admired him because when he told me about his athletic accomplishments, I want you to understand a Christian's perspective when you do great things. He said, son, I remember and I'm thankful for athletics because when I lined up against another individual, I don't remember all of the times that I was great and that I won. I remember all the times I didn't want to go one more down. It showed me where I was weak, not where I was strong. Well, that's the right way to look at it. If you're accomplished in business, you need to look at the ways that you're still needing to measure up. If you're accomplished in athletics, you need to look at other areas of your life. The problem with lifting up these great things is that you're the one that's great, not God. I watched my father go through different struggles in his life from a medical standpoint. And some of them took some of his athletic strength away from him. As we get older, friends, all of the things that the world calls great are fading. All of them are fading. I don't care how great somebody thinks Hugh Hefner is. At some point, the things that he's put his stock in are not even applicable anymore. Okay? And it gets kind of ridiculous, somebody who is 80 trying to act like they're 18, doesn't it? Nothing more laughable than to see a woman clinging to vanity too late in life. Nothing more laughable than that. These things are all a fading glory. Well, as some of my father's athletic prowess decided to be stripped away, as God saw fit to allow that to be stripped away, as he got older, I watched him. He clung to a guitar. He clung to worship. He clung to the things that are important to God. In other words, God was teaching me. It's none of these things that made him a man. It's all of these other things that makes him a man. And that was an object lesson for me as a young man in the prime of my strength. See, what a time to learn that. Thank you, God, for godly examples in our lives. You understand what I'm telling you? I'm not telling you that it's not okay to be strong or any of those other things. Enjoy it while it lasts, my friend. It won't last long. Okay? Those are not the things that are really important. Man's not measured by his dominion of animals. Now, you don't see this very often uh, except in the South. Some admire people who are great businessmen and athletes. Others admire people who are experienced with women or, or men or, I mean, these days, you know, they call them trisexuals. They will try anything, okay? Those two realms. Now, the last refuge, this kind of the NASCAR crowd, if you will, they admire people who are great in their great white hunter skills, you know, the great fisherman, the Bill Dance of the world, you know, the great white hunter, if, if you will. Uh, uh, my son might admire Steve Irwin, <laughs> you know. What a real man. He wrestles alligators, <laughs> you know. I want to read to you about another guy whose life was kind of like that. In Genesis 25. Matt, do you have any idea what time we started today? It's going to be a long one, my friends. A quarter till. Okay, thank you. Genesis 25, verse 24. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. 
So they named him Esau. I don't know if that's what a mother wants to see with her kid. But I tell you, who did like it? Who liked this? Daddy. Boy, that one's a man. He's born with hair on his chest. He looks like a man. He smells like a man. You're going to find out he goes out and kills game like a man, right? Come on, you know that appeals to a certain group of people with their names on their belt in this country, right? You can identify him anywhere in public. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to him. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man. You know, some time goes on, you can skip on down to... Well, no, let's go ahead and read it. While Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents, verse 28, Isaac had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. You don't see that word very often in the Bible, do you? He was hungry. Now, why do you think God might be working to get somebody like Esau hungry? If what you are strong in is the natural abilities of this world, God has to take you to a place of weakness in them so that you can crave something spiritual. You understand what I'm saying? If you are strong, God will break you so that you can learn to be weak. If you are proud, He will humble you. But if you are humble, He will exalt you. God will work against whatever your natural strengths are to instill in you His greatness. That's how God works. So He's put Esau in a position where he is vanished. He's going to get a choice here between a taste for the natural and a taste for the spiritual. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country vanished. Verse 30, He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm vanished. That is why it's also called Edom, which means red. Jacob replied, First sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. The firstborn son gave up his spiritual inheritance. And why? For a bowl of beans. Hebrews speaks about it in this way, and you don't have to turn there. But it's Hebrews 12:14 if you want to write it down, 14 through 17. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misuses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the firstborn son. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? So what is it that determines what a man is? Is it his conquest over the animal kingdom? His conquest over women? His conquest over other men? None of those things are examples in the Bible that are lifted up as what a man is. So what is? Well, this answer is hard. It's not one that is easy to apply. The truest measure of a man is his level of obedience or submission to Yahweh God. You know, Jesus so often didn't do the things that you would have wanted Him to do. You remember Jesus is discussing something with Peter. They talk about the church, how the church would be founded, and then He mentions that He's going to die, right? That's kind of weak, isn't it? I'm going to go lay down my life. I'm going to go let somebody else kill me. That's kind of weak, huh? 
What did Peter say? Oh, no, Lord, never, never. And how did Jesus respond? Get behind me, Satan. You always have in mind the things of men. See, the standards of this world, what men cling to, are different than what the kingdom is built upon. So you have to go against your natural inclination. You have to go against what might seem and feel right at first. When you're struck, what do you want to do? Strike back. When you're insulted, what do you want to do? Insult right back. All of those things. You know, there was a generation not that long ago that the motto was, if it feels good, do it. Where did that get Solomon? That's why I read to you about him. You know, think about that. The truest measure of a man is his level of submission or obedience to Yahweh God. Now, when I say obedience, please don't think I'm talking about just churchy rules or laws. That's ridiculousness. I'm talking about submission to God's will in your life. Turn with me to Hebrews 5. Jesus was a really, really good example of exactly what kind of submission God honors, what the real measure of a man is. Hebrews 5, starting in verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the One who could save Him from death. He was heard because of His reverent submission. Why was Jesus heard? What did it say? Because of His reverent submission. To what? To the leading of God's Spirit in His life. You know, we're faced with a decision every time there's the good out there that we know we should do. Every time. Do you do it or do you not? You weigh the consequences in your mind. Well, if I do that, other people will think this. Uh, There might be a cost to me in business. There might be this or that. Jesus was heard by God, saved, delivered from death because of His reverent submission. Although He was a son, He learned obedience from what He suffered. Well, a lot of people don't like that verse. What do you mean Jesus learned? It's not sin not to know something. He learned it through a, a process that started the day He was born. He was perfectly obedient to everything that God told Him to do, and so His obedience grew. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, as the Spirit leads you to do things, you need to be obedient to it. Your obedience then grows. Your knowledge of the Word and of the world and everything else grows and you get stronger and stronger and stronger. Although He was a son, He learned obedience from what He suffered. And once made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey Him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Turn with me to John 14. I want to read to you one of my favorite passages about Jesus. The real measure of a man has nothing to do with how you relate to other men. It has nothing to do with how you relate to women or what you are dominant over. All of those things are worldly. You want to go be somebody's apprentice? Be Jesus' apprentice. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then we're going to be in John 14. John 14, verse 28. You have heard me say, I am going away, and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. 
I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. Now, I want you to get this. Somebody tell me what one of Jesus' titles is. Just name out a few. Prince of Peace, King of Kings, Son of Man, Mighty Lion of Judah, all of these things. There were two princes on the earth at the same time. One that was there because man had yielded his authority to him and another who had come to restore man to his position before God. Okay? Two princes. And what does Jesus say? For the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. But the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what the Father has commanded me. I want you to get this. If I told you today that there was somebody who was opposing me, what would your first inclination be? What would make me a man? <laughs> be to oppose them, right? You know, if somebody slanders you, slander them right back. If somebody is ugly to you, be ugly to them. If somebody hurts you, hurt them right back. Isn't that the temptation in the world all of the time? And if you don't do that, right? Aren't you called weak and thought of poorly? You know? Oh, boy. Jesus just let everybody take advantage of Him. You, what do you mean He just went and laid down His life? Let the Romans take it from Him. If He really has the power, let Him get down off that cross. Isn't that what they told Him? It's confusing to the world because our battle scheme is different. I covered some of this with you on Wednesday, but it's worth covering again. Go to Second uh, Corinthians 10. This is really, really important that you get this. You know why? You're going to get lots of practice in your Christian life at this. If you're in the Thompson chain, 2 Corinthians 10 is on page 1288. 2 Corinthians 10. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold went away. I beg you, I beg you, that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. I want you to understand what the standards of this world are. Standard is a word that's been derived from something that was preexistent. Standards in the ancient world were what armies went to battle under. A standard for today in our, in our present military, each battalion has little logos. Each platoon has little logos that is their company uh, motto, if you will. When I went to Israel, I took pictures of them because I thought they were neat. They're usually something scary. You know, skulls and crossbones and vicious-looking birds and those kind of things, right? Well, in the ancient world, if I went to battle against you, I carried the standards of my army with me, of my nation with me. This is where the idea of flags come from, by the way. Okay? Those standards went out. And Paul is saying right here, I expect to be some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. This world holds up standards that show the way that they fight. They're all the things that I talked about in the introduction. Their business prowess, their intellectual acumen, their conquest over men, women, and animals, the showing of strength and brute force are the standards of this world. You hurt me, I will hurt you back. All of those kind of things. 
Listen to what Paul says. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. I want you to notice something. Paul did not say we do not fight. He said we fight differently. The world has a method of warfare, a standard under which they fight. We fight, but we fight differently. It's important that you learn how we fight. Then we're going to move on. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Hold your finger there for a minute. I was telling people Wednesday night, those of you that were here, an American stronghold that you should be familiar with is West Point. During the Revolutionary War, our founding fathers thought that this was a a place of vulnerability because British warships could come into the mouth of the river that it sits on and then there would be a continual supply port. There would be a continual base of strength there. So they stretched chains out across the river. They put weights there. They fortified the hills with gunneries, cannons. And then they brought in some guy from Holland to help them learn to build a stronger stronghold. Paul is saying, we don't fight like the world does. We have divine power to demolish strongholds. Now he's going to list for you what those strongholds are so that you can be aware of them, what you're supposed to be fighting against. First on the list, we demolish arguments. Arguments. You want to get into the enemy's camp, get sucked into his stronghold, his place of fortification, under his standards of the world, get involved in an argument with somebody. Soon as you do that, soon as you get into a heated conversation where you're claiming to be right, they're claiming to be right, and you are antagonistic towards one another, you have just surrounded yourself by the enemy's fortifications. Those are the standards of this world surrounding you, the way that this world fights. So how do you fight? You refuse to argue. Smile. Be sweet. Let a kind word turn away wrath. Say, I know, friend, and I'm sorry. You seem upset. Let's go off in our separate directions and pray. We can discuss this at another time. That is like crumbling the enemy's fortress right there. What's the next thing? It says pretensions. You know what a pretension is? It's a claim as to who is right. If you can avoid an argument, but what resides in your heart, if Bobby and Tony refuse to argue, but what Tony thinks in her heart is, but I was right, or what Bobby thinks in his heart, even though it didn't come out of his mouth, is, but I was right. That's just one more way that you are in the enemy's stronghold. And you know what? It won't take much to get you right into that argument. Because although you didn't go right into the argument, you're still clinging to something that you shouldn't cling with. What's the next thing that he says? We demolish arguments, every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Number one, you refuse to argue. That is a weapon and a tactic of this world. Number two, you refuse to claim to be right. doesn't make any difference whether somebody else thinks you're right or not. A man is measured not by what other people think about him, not by his conquest, not by the fact that he's right. A man is measured by your obedience to God. You know what that means? It means you can be absolutely right and handle it wrong and lose God's favor. Him not think of you highly. So what do you do? You refuse to have to claim to be right. You simply lay out the truth, leave it there for them, love them, and wait for them to get it. 
The last one, take every captive thought and make it obedient to your knowledge of Christ. This is the hardest. If you can stay out of arguments, which is hard to do, and you can manage not to have the need to be right, the next level that is hard to deal with is not even entertaining thoughts you shouldn't have. Well, I saw the way Bobby just looked at me. And I, you know, I just don't know what to think about that. I can feel it coming. There's going to be an argument, you know? How many times have you played out thoughts in your mind that never actually occurred? And you know what? It's just as if it happened. If you dwell on the fact that I think you're a bad person long enough, even though I don't think you're a bad person, you'll begin to treat me as if that's true. Any thought that is not glorifying to God must be brought into submission to your knowledge of God that says don't do that. This is how we fight. We don't fight like the world fights. We fight in a different manner. Say, well, Eric, are you describing a pacifist? Nothing could be further from the truth. It's what I want you to understand. Paul says we have weapons in the right hand and in the left. We're not refusing to fight. We are fighting differently. We have a method of warfare that will allow somebody to be struck down so that God can raise them up. That will allow somebody to be slandered so that God and nobody else can show the truth of what they're saying. Do you understand what I'm saying? This goes contrary to what we think of as the measure of a man. It feels unmanly to not defend yourself, to not stand up for yourself. But I tell you what, when God does defend you, when God does stand up for you, it feels supremely awesome. Paul gets to the point where he says, look, I tell you what, pray for your enemies. <laughs> That's not just a, a loving, oh, Mandy's been my enemy now for years. You can see that about Mandy, can't you? <laughs> been my enemy now for years. That's not just, oh Lord, I love her, bless her, shower flowers on her. No, here's how the prayer for the enemy goes. Lord, they're opposing me, which means they're opposing you because I'm standing for you. I pray for mercy in her life because I'm refusing to act out and I'm leaving room for you to deal with it and I've seen how you deal with the enemies of God and I don't want Mandy to be dealt with harshly. Do you understand? Yes. See, if you leave room for God's vengeance, friends, if it does happen, because it's hard to wear out His mercy, when it happens, it's worse than anything you could ever think of. There was a man named Herod that when he spoke, the people said, this is the voice of a God and not that of a man. Well, this was not the first time Herod had allowed himself to receive praise like this. He had a wicked family, was full of sinful adulteries. He ordered the head to be cut off of somebody, somebody loved by God. And you know what? The Bible says some men's sins go ahead of them and reach the place of judgment. Others trail behind them. Here is a man whose sin was so great it reached God and God decided to do something about it. The Bible says that an angel struck him and he fell down and died and was eaten by worms. This was somebody that would have been great in the world's eyes. A king, a man of stature, a man of reputation. But he was offensive to God. He had John, not John, James, put to death. Okay? Now, what I'm getting at, though, is the believers in Jesus didn't run out and boycott and try to kill Herod. The believers in Jesus didn't hear what he said and stand up and vigorously argue with him. They left room for God to deal with it. And when God did deal with it, it was worse than anything that the believers could have done. You need to remember that. You need to take that into your heart. But here's the trick. 
when you take that into your heart, you can't sit back and say, Sick them, Lord. Get them, Lord. I'm waiting for, I'm waiting for you to judge them, Lord. Just rain it down on them, Lord. That's the attitude that Jonah had. And God would not put up with it. God cares about Nineveh even. Nineveh in Jonah's day had a pile of human skulls that reached the top of their gate a hundred feet into the air. You ever wondered why Jonah didn't want to go preach to the Ninevites? He hated them. And why did he hate them? Because they were wicked, nasty people. But God cared about them and even the livestock in their country and He sent a prophet to them. And when the prophet wasn't obedient, he disciplined the prophet because he wanted them to get saved. God cares about the worst of the worst out there and is trying to draw them in. So you cannot have the heart, well, Patricia did this to me and I can't wait till God does this to her. No, you pray for your enemy. Lord, I pray that that person repents because if they don't, I've seen what you do. You know, you take very seriously when people hurt your children. That's the right attitude. Okay, Jesus. Jesus said the prince of this world is coming, but he has no hold on me. Friends, if you will stay out of the standards of this world, you will give the enemy no room to put a hold on you. But as soon as you get in arguments, pretensions, and entertain evil thoughts, he's already got a grip on you. It's sliding up your leg and will soon be around your throat. You have to figure out how to cast those things down. Turn with me to First Peter. Let's talk about this reverent submission that Jesus had and what the result is. Be First Peter 3. If you get to the book of Revelation and you hang a left, you'll soon be in Peter. Y'all with me? First Peter 3. For Christ died for sins. This is First Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also He went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's the key. Who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. Jesus refused to fight by the standards of this world. When He was struck, He didn't strike back. When He was insulted, He didn't return insult. When they called Him a drunkard and demon-possessed, His response was to love and to advance the kingdom of God. So then Jesus, who refused to fight like the world God fought for, raised Him out of a grave, set Him at the right hand of God with everything one day in complete submission to Him. This is exactly what Philippians talks about. And I'll read you this. You don't have to turn there. Philippians 2 in verse 5 says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. When people insulted Him, even though He had the nature of God, He didn't fight with them about it. He simply said the truth and let it lie at that. But made Himself nothing. That's the hard part in what I'm saying. The hard part in what I'm saying is that to be a man, you need to be willing to be nothing. 
And the world tells you to be a man, you can't let anybody treat you like you were nothing. This is the complete opposite. It's turning the world's view upside down, putting God first and you last. And if you do that, God will raise you to the first place. But others won't understand it. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. I want you to get this. We're talking about the King of the universe who hung the planets and the stars in space after He created the space for it to dwell in. And He took the form of a man and not a king, not a a Bill Gates or a Donald Trump, a lowly servant. The God of the universe put Himself in a body that was a baby and had to be changed diapers, had to be fed milk. Body that got tired, that got hungry, all of those things. He was willing to become nothing so that God could elevate him as a man and show us the way that this is done. That is not the standards of this world. What is the measure of a man? The measure of a man is the one that says, not my will done, Lord. Your will at all cost, regardless of the consequence. Your will be done. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. We're talking about somebody who never did anything wrong. Never. There was never a time that Jesus entertained a thought that He shouldn't have, much less clung to a sinful pretension or got into a sinful argument. He never entered into the stronghold of the enemy. And yet He submitted to God's will even to the point where His very life was taken away and in the most shameful humiliating way possible. I know when you think of the crucifixion, sometimes we have this uh, church history art of a uh, robed or maybe half-robed chicken-looking Jesus, like a fishing lure, hanging on a cross, super spiritual. He was a man. You think about Him that way. And they hung Him up there naked or nearly naked. They did everything they could to embarrass Him. They put a sign that they meant to mock Him above his head that rightly identified him. They killed him next to criminals and released somebody in his place that was a criminal. And he submitted to it. He could have done something about it and he didn't because he wanted God's will, not his own will. And it was hard for him. He said, Father, if you could let this cup pass, (laughs) you know, if there's some other way around this, but nevertheless, your will be done. That is the measure of a man. That is the measure of what makes a man. The one that says, this hurts, Lord, but I'll do it for you. This is not what I want to do, Lord, but I don't care about what I want. I want what you want. This is how we become godly. Verse 9 of second of Philippians 2 teaches a principle. Preston Coles taught me this. It's parallelism. Because Jesus did this and this and this and this that I've just discussed, God did things for Him. Therefore, God exalted Him. Jesus humbled Himself, so God exalted Him to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He was willing to become nothing, so God put Him over everything. He was willing to be insulted, 
So at the mention of His name, every knee on earth will one day bow. When you're willing to put God's will above your own will, that is the measure of success. That is the measure of a man. And in the end, it will always pay off. But did it look like it in Jesus' earthly life? Not at all, but I bet it will at His second coming, huh? The Bible speaks of a day when those who didn't, didn't call on His name cry out for the earth to cover them up, for rocks to fall on them, and their bladders give way. That's what the Hebrew speaks about, speaking about the day of the coming of the Lord, because they are horrified, realizing that the one that they didn't esteem was the one that God esteemed. You know what? You're little Christ. If you will just act like Him in every situation, God will take up for you. He will fight your battles to the point where you'll learn to pray for your enemies. Our attitude should be like that of Jesus. But often we want to do something great or something that feels good, something that your flesh wants, you know? Sometimes you can almost taste it. <laughs> All for God, mind you, you know? Lord, I only said that because He said this about you. I only said that because I'm trying to teach your doctrine and they said it wasn't, you know? Whatever it fights inside of you, you want to act out. All for God. When in reality, if we submit to the Spirit's leading, what we will do might seem small, might be humbling, but the outcome is great because it's God's. Boy, that's hard. That's as hard as anything you'll ever do, and yet that's what being a Christian comes down to. Your way and not my way, Lord. What I want is this, but I cast it down, throw it aside, and I will do it your way. It's what it means when you say, Lord, He's the owner and controller of your life. 2 Kings 5, I'm going to read you a story and I'm going to have to hurry here. So if you can trust that I'm not lying to you, then you don't have to turn there. 2 Kings 5, verse 1. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded. This guy was great by all the standards of the world. Because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. I want, to, I want you to understand something. When you look at a great movie star, rich, successful in all the ways of the world, doing to others before they do to you, they may look great, but they have leprosy. You may not be able to see it through all of the silicone, but there is leprosy there. I promise it. When you see a great man in business that has stomped on everybody in the world to get to the top, he may look great, but there is leprosy there. The rich suits, the diamond rings, all of those things may have hidden it, but it is there. Now bands from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel. Wasn't that one of the ways that people proved their prowess I told you about earlier? He's great in warfare. He takes girls captive from Israel. And she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of leprosy. Think about this servant girl. I want you to think about this for me. You've heard about the story of Naaman maybe all of your life. I don't know. Maybe it's the first time you've heard it. But have you ever heard anybody emphasize the servant girl? Naaman is a mighty man in the kingdom of Aram, not the kingdom of God. 
He's great. He's got silver. He's got clothes. He's got a letter from the king we're going to read about. He's a man of stature, a man to be contented with, a man among men. And yet he has leprosy, something he can't do anything about. And he takes captive a servant girl. Does that sound like a kind thing to do? Take somebody captive? Would you like somebody to take you captive? If somebody did take you captive, what would you be tempted to do? You would escape. You might kill. There, Judah, that jumped right out of your mouth, didn't it, boy? You might kill. Might wait for him to go to sleep and hit him with a frying pan, right? Because the standards of this world will tell you, he took you captive, you cut his legs off if you can. You hurt him. But what does this girl do? This servant girl. If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. She returns his evil with kindness. I know a man who can fix your real problem. Naaman, you've conquered everything around you. You have all the clothes you could want. You have all the money you could want. You have the king's favor. But your real problem is your leprosy, your sin. And I know somebody who can fix it. She didn't hurt him. She didn't strike back at him. She tried to help him. This is the mark of a Christian. When others tried to hurt you, you helped them. You served them. This is what happens though. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send the letter to the king of Israel. (laughs) So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, ten thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took, the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you will cure him of leprosy. The servant girl didn't say, Go to the king of Israel. She didn't say, go get gold, go get clothes, get get all these things. She said, I know a prophet in Samaria that can help you. But these great men don't know how to relate to God in that way. They want to do something great. They want to do something that they get credit for. I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and at the top of my great strength, something happened. I worked and I worked and I worked and by the strength of my own right arm, something happened. That's never God's way, though. He cannot honor that. He can't honor your gold jewelry. He cannot honor your great name. He gets honor for showing that you have leprosy and fixing it. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, another great man, by the way, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send somebody to to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me? The king of Israel thought this was just a sly way to start a fight. That's exactly what he thought. Because the standards of this world are arguments, pretensions, evil thoughts. That's not what's going on at all. This started from a slave girl captured who wanted to do something kind. And so far, all anybody's seen in it are the ways of the world. When Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elijah's house. I was telling you all earlier about Gary. His favorite song is some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Chariots and horses were the equivalent of tanks and airplanes then. They were the fast movers and the heavy hitters of their day. Do you notice Naaman brought all of those things with him? 
Elijah sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be cleansed. That is a very simple thing to do. Go take a bath seven times, buddy, and your leprosy will leave. But it was so simple that the great man has trouble lowering himself to do it. We fight by a different standard than the world does. And at first, it seems entirely too simple and undignified. When somebody wants to hurt you, you refuse to participate. When somebody claims to be right, you let them right. When you have a, a thought that's not a thought you should have, you refuse to have it. Always seeking peace in every situation. It seems so simple that it's hard to do. I should do something. I should get out. I should fight. I should do something. Have you ever felt like that? Yeah. All God wants me to do is wait, and I need to do something. Do you hear what they're saying, Lord? Have you seen the way they're doing this? I need to... Well, I can get so frustrated sometimes I could just pop. And what the Lord wants is for me to wait and quietly bathe in Him. He'll fix it all. He'll fix everything that's ailing me. I just have to refuse to fight like the world does. Are you feeling me here? But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. Wave his hand over the spot and cure me of leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any waters of Israel? <laughs> I'm not going to that little garage church. I, I'm not going into that place. In my tower, my cathedral, better than that? I'm not going there because that's where they say the power of God is. You know, aren't there better churches where I'm from? I can't tell you the number of people that have gotten saved in a trailer-style church and been shocked because they'd only ever been in a cathedral. What if God brought this man all the way to a dirty river on purpose because it required him to strip off some of his gold, some of his jewelry, some of his prestige and bathe in something that looked unclean to him because God said it was clean? See, that's how people get saved. By refusing, refusing to do what the world wants you to do, the thing that they esteem, and do what God wants you to do. You want to know if you're saved? You're saved when you put His will above your own and you begin to live that way. Oh, I know. I, you've been told you're saved when you believe something. I would say you don't believe it unless you're doing that. that that's just me, maybe. Or maybe the Word says that, too. You know what? You'll have to read it and decide So he turned and went off in a rage. The way of this world is always wrapped in anger. It's always trenched in anger. You don't do what I want and I'm mad. You don't do what I want and I will withhold love. I will withhold affection. I will be bitter and angry. The way of God says, you hurt me and I love you more. You disparage me and I will love you more. I may keep a little bit of distance from you, but I'm going to love you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm not saying that Bobby slaps me and I walk up and say, please, I enjoyed that, slap me again. That would make me some kind of weirdo. But the more he hurts me, the more somebody hurt me, the more you show love because it shows a need for the gospel. It shows how badly they need God's intervention inside the kingdom and outside of the kingdom. It's amazing how that works. The flesh doesn't like simple things because it can't get any glory for them. 
See, if Naaman could have gone back and given the story, the great man of God came out and waved his hand and pronounced a magic incantation and the sky split and a lightning bolt came and it hit my leprosy, then Naaman would still be the great man. But if he goes back with the story, I had to take off all of my kingly garments. The letter from the king that I was sent made no difference. The clothes that I brought made no difference. The gold and silver that I brought made no difference. required me to be like any other humble fellow, go down and dip in the water, and then I was cleansed. Then he would be a man stripped of pride, but healed of leprosy. See, I don't know about you, but I would rather have no pride and also have no leprosy than to possess them both. That's a decision everybody gets to make. Do I be like the world and be leprous to God? Cling to my pride, which is like leprosy before God? Or do I get rid of them both so that I can be saved? Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, Wash and be cleansed? Great thing, Naaman repents. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. This gospel message is not a difficult one. Oh, it is difficult. It's not a complex one. No matter how good people look on the outside, they've got leprosy and need to be cleansed, need to be restored. The thing that we do that helps them is we tell them how to be restored. If they capture you, conquer you, or mean to you, you don't fight with them like the world fights. You fight in a different manner. You take the fight to the spiritual level. You refuse to argue with them and you attack the principalities in their life that are causing them to do those things. And in this way, you see the kingdom advance and you succeed. You need to learn the message from this story. Yahweh doesn't need your strength. He doesn't need your power. He wants to gain glory for Himself using us who are weak. This is also why the Lord desires a broken and contrite heart. The weaker you are, the more powerful He can be in you. There's no confusion between you, the great man, and Him, the great God. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, it says, But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for My power is made perfect in weakness. God says that His power is displayed perfectly in human weakness. Speaking of Paul when he said that, we're talking about a guy who was beaten, who was dishonored, the most controversial figure in the church in his day and the most esteemed by us. Some said they followed Paul, some Apollos and some Peter. I have a feeling that those that said they followed Apollos and Peter were more than those that said they followed Paul. Paul had a controversial message that Peter said most people didn't even understand. Peter's own writings say that Paul's writings are difficult. He was not widely received among even his own brothers because his message was understood, all, misunderstood all of the time. And yet, listen to how he speaks of it in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Paul understood the weaker he was, the more he looked like a regular old jar of clay, the more people said he was timid when face-to-face the more when power was displayed, people would see it was from God. He understood that he fought, but he fought in a different way. Friends, was he powerful? Did he succeed? 
The very fact that all of us are Gentiles in this building calling on a Jewish king means that his ministry succeeded because he was the first and only apostle that wanted to go do that. Now there are more Gentiles in the church than Jews. We have another problem now. You know? In Matthew 20, verse 26, we're going to wrap this up here. It says, Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. If you want to be great in the kingdom, you need to put others' needs before your own. That means in warfare and in every way, you put somebody's needs before your own. Somebody's oppressive to you. Maybe you have a boss at work that is hard on you. Maybe they ask you to do things that you don't think are the right way to do it. Maybe it's embarrassing some of the things they ask you to do. Put their needs before your own, and in that way Jesus will call you great. This works in every area that the world would say don't do it in. There was a man in Matthew 8 who astonished Jesus. Do you remember why he astonished him? Because he was a man under authority. And he said, Lord, I don't need you to come under my roof. If you speak, it'll be done. If we just take that attitude towards Jesus, I don't need to go do something. I don't need to lash out. I just need Jesus' authority to work in my life. I need to submit to Him and see what He says to do. Then it'll take care of itself. I promise it will. John 4 had the same idea. A royal official said, You just say the word and it will be done. And Jesus was amazed at His faith. If you take Jesus at His word it will get done. It takes a while sometimes, most of the time, all, right, all of the time. It takes a while. But that's where faith comes in. I want to talk to you about two principles, then we have to close. I've got ten more pages to preach, but that's, I guess, going to be another day. Two principles. The Samson Syndrome. I was talking with a brother who was telling me about the Samson Syndrome. What was Samson born for? Samson was born to destroy the enemies of Israel, but his eyes kept getting on the wrong things. He stayed in constant interfighting with his own people who kept tying him up and trying to hand him over to the enemy. And when he wasn't doing that, he was looking for a foreign wife all of the time. Now, God's grace in Samson's life was that he still accomplished the objective. He killed more people the day he died than in his whole life and he began the deliverance of Israel. But think of what Samson could have accomplished if he was not constantly tied up by his friendly fire and if he was not constantly having his eyes on the other... Many Christians have all the talent of Samson, but they have the Samson syndrome. It's like our eyes have been put out. We wander around in the dark fighting with anybody who's close to us rather than taking the fight to the enemy. Refuse to do that. Just refuse to do it. Don't suffer from Samson syndrome. The next thing is about Elijah and Elisha. This will be a whole other message in itself someday. But Elijah did seven major miracles in his life. He was anointed of God. And there was a man who the Bible simply said followed him. And his name was Elisha. Elijah and Elisha. Elisha followed him, learned from him, took what he had and asked God to build upon it. He asked God for a double anointing of what Elijah had and God gave it to him. In Elijah's life, seven major miracles... In Elisha's life, 13. Now, my math's off, isn't it? 
How is that double? How is 13 double 7? God promised the man a double anointing. And yet, he got sick and he died having only done 13 major miracles. 2 Kings 13 tells a story after Elisha's death. And as these guys are digging a grave, a Moabite raiding team comes in and it attacks them. So the Israelites go, oh man, we don't have time to bury our friend, we have to fight with the Moabites. And they toss a dead body into an open grave that happened to be Elisha's. When that dead body touched the man of God's bones, he sprang to life, got up, and joined the fight. What the God has promised you may not look like it's happening. It may not seem to be occurring even in your lifetime. Lord, you promised me 14 and I've gotten right up to the door. Here I am dying and there's only 13. If it takes resurrecting somebody from the dead, God's promises will work for you. They have always been that way. He gets more glory through it, the more impossible it looks. If it takes Him resurrecting somebody from the dead, He will be faithful to His promises in you. That's what our faith is about. Jesus said that He had overcome everything and it looked like He was subject to death. But the day He got out of the grave, He proved He had power over it all. If it takes a resurrection from the dead, His promise to you will not fail. You just have to put your trust in Him. That means even if you're facing death and it doesn't look like things are going your way, obviously, you go, wow, even if He has to raise me from the dead, He is going to fix this body. He is going to take care of the problems because His Word said it. I want the faith of Elijah. I want to avoid the Samson syndrome. I want to be a man of God because of my reverent submission and the obedience that I've learned. Paul called apostles to be faith that produced obedience. That's what he said. I'm an apostle to the Gentiles calling people to the faith that comes from obedience. Or obedience that comes from faith, rather. In our walk, if you want to be a man in the kingdom, you need to be a man that is obedient. That's how you become a man. One last scripture. It's in Proverbs 24. I ate lunch with a brother this week. I said, I always ask people, what's your favorite scripture? He said, well, it's Proverbs 24:16. It says, don't lie in wait like an outlaw to come into a righteous man's house. For though he falls seven times, yet will he rise again. I may look down to you, friends, at times, but I am never out of the game. And neither are you. You can fall seven times, which is perfectly. Your enemy can knock you to your knees. He can make you dry bones in a grave. And God's able to bring it to life again. You are never out. You just need to not give up. You need to be a man in the kingdom, which means do exactly what he says when he says do it. Y'all stand up. Let's pray.